Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. morning. It is Friday, the 20th of May, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thank you for including me in your day today. So uh, this is the song that was going through my mind this morning during my Bible study. I will not sing it to you, but I will read the words. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored and they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, they will know we are Christians by our love. And we'll work with each other. We'll work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. Like that's positive pride, not like negative pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, they will know we are Christians by our love. When the world considers Christ today, the world considers Christians. Do they know we are Christians by our love? I was just convicted um, this morning that, you know, we're so quick to find fault and point out the differences between us, personally, politically, theologically. It's exhausting. Now, I am not saying that theological accuracy does does not matter. You know that it does. Uh, I'm not saying that political differences are irrelevant. They matter, too. What I am saying is that the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, our union with one another as those who are um, fellow members of the body of Christ, that matters too, at least as much and maybe more than all of the differences among us. We are members of each other. I mean, the sister and brother language, you know, we're going to be sisters and brothers throughout all eternity in the kingdom of God, that's significant. But the body language, the members of one body knit together in one body, each part of the body doing its, uh, you know, functioning appropriately for the building up of the body, which also means that if any part of the body is dysfunctional or disconnected or out of joint, disjointed, um, then it hinders the whole body functioning the way that it should in the world on behalf of Christ. So although believers in Christ have differing cultures and ethnicities and nationalities and gifts and passions and personalities and experiences and even expressions of faith, God has called us by the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace of Jesus Christ. He has called us into one body, members of each other. Read Ephesians 4 today. Reread John chapter 17 today. Read James 2, 1 to 10 today. And it's a pretty radical thing um, that God calls us to in terms of the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace of the people of Christ. 
Let's consider the beliefs and the values that are promoted in Ephesians 4, John 17, James 2. Let's let's consider what it means to be knit together, to be living stones of one uh, substantial expression of the grace of God in the world known as the church. Yeah, let's test ourselves today. Will they know we are Christians by our love? By our love, will they know we are Christians by our love? Bruce Ashford is waiting in the wings right now. Uh, He and I are going to talk about a meeting he once had with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Bruce Ashford is back. You can find him at bruceashford.net. Welcome back, sir. Hey, it's great to be back on my favorite show, Carmen. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to cut that audio and just repurpose it for ourselves over and over again. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so you met Vladimir Putin. Let's uh, let's talk about that. That's not something everybody can say. Yeah, you know, it was March of 2000. I'm an old guy, 47. I was in my 20s, lived in Russia, and I didn't think it was that big of a deal at at the time. Um, He was running for president for the first time, and to me, he was just another Russian politician. But I could tell the Russian people were very excited about him uh, because they were embarrassed of Boris Yeltsin, who's a stumble-down drunk, and and they wanted a tough guy as president. So I was put in the front of the queue in the city that I lived in and met him, short little guy. About five, six. I was going to put my Coke in his head while I talked to him, but uh, in retrospect, probably uh, glad that I didn't do that. Um, and yeah, I just I spoke to him in Russian and he spoke back to me in English, which was a little bit of a power play, him saying that his English is better than my Russian. Uh, but just a brief, uh, brief conversation. And the Russians were uh, very, very excited about the guy because, you know, they had come out of the, the fall of the Soviet Union, which was embarrassing. They were happy that it happened, but they were embarrassed that they perpetrated it. And uh, they were embarrassed of Boris Yeltsin, and they wanted a strong nationalist leader, and that's what they got. Talk with us about um, nationalism when when we're talking about Russia. Because when we talk about nationalism here in the United States— um, we, might, we, we are talking about a different kind of worldview related to nationalism than we are in Russia. They have some similarities at some levels, but talk about what, what makes nationalism distinctive in the Russian mind. Yeah, I mean, the word nationalism, you know, I mean, it gets tossed around like a drunken midget at a biker rally. It, I mean, it gets used in all kinds of different ways. Um, there's economic nationalism, which is just meaning we need to do what's best for our country economically rather than buying into the whole global system. Um, <clears throat> there's ethno-nationalism, which is elevating a particular ethnic group above other ethnic groups within the nation. <clears throat> there's religious nationalism, which ties the nation to a particular denomination. And in Russia, I think what nationalism, nationalism is mainly is just a glorification of the nation and its historical roots and the preeminence and the the, the positivity of the Russian people, but it's also mixed with religious nationalism. Um, again, uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian Orthodox Church is once again in bed with the Russian state. And I think for the Russians at the time, 
they didn't really care about the religious portion that much. They're generally not a religious people anymore. What they wanted was uh, some some glory and so, to, to save face for their nation, given the disastrous uh, experiment that was uh, the Soviet Union. Would it be fair to say that um, there is a willingness, uh, even for the non-religious Russian person, including, I would include in that Vladimir Putin, um, a willingness for a Russian, even uh, who uh, a person who is expressly non-religious, to use um, religious people and a religious institution, in this case the Russian Orthodox Church, to advance um, the idea uh, of Russian preeminence and to um, put a uh, a cloak of religiosity around um, things like the military effort in Ukraine. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting during the during the Soviet period, um, uh, you know, Stalin, who's very similar to Putin in some ways, uh, decided that he wanted to basically get rid of the Russian Orthodox Church in order to glorify the Russian state. But what Putin has done cynically is try to use the uh, Orthodox Church to help glorify the Russian state and to get the Russian patriarch and the Russian um, ecclesiastical hierarchy to sign on to his wars, to sign on to his blatantly false justifications for an egregiously unjust war against Ukraine. And you see, I think right now, one of the worst instances in recent history, maybe the worst instance in recent history of a, a denomination being in bed with a, uh, the state to perpetrate something that is clearly violates the Bible's rules and uh, human rights in general. Bruce Ashford has a piece posted right now at BruceAshford.net, Stalin's child, Vladimir Putin as a grandchild of the revolution. So we've talked about um, one way in which Stalin and Putin are distinct in terms of their interest in using the church to advance the ends of the state. When we come back, we're going to talk about the ways in which Vladimir Putin is really a grandchild of the revolution Stalin's Child. That's the name of the article at BruceAshford.net. We'll continue our conversation with Bruce in just a moment. When you think about uh, your spiritual mentors, when you think about the people after whose, uh, you know, thought patterns and ideas and even faith, you pattern your own life. Whose child are you? Whose God child are you? Um, what's your legacy of faith? We're going to talk about Putin as the metaphorical grandchild of Stalin. We're talking with Bruce Ashford. You can find the article at BruceAshford.net. Um, how is it, Bruce, that Vladimir Putin is 100 years after uh, after Stalin's revolution really carrying on um, and living into that particular legacy? Yeah, so, you know, Stalin, those of you out there in Radio Land of a certain age will remember the Soviet Union. Um, if you're, you know, if you're younger than 30, you won't remember it. Maybe you've studied about in history. But the most infamous leader of the um, Soviet Revolution is not Vladimir Lenin, but Joseph Stalin. He was a brutal dictator. He slaughtered, uh, you know, millions and millions of people and political enemies and such. And Putin has drawn on some of Stalin's tactics uh, to rule Russia and admire Stalin for his strength. And um, one of the similarities is um, cynical view of religion. 
And uh, so whereas Stalin's cynicism about religion took the shape of atheism, explicit atheism, Putin's cynicism is to use the Orthodox Church uh, in a utilitarian manner to get what he wants. And when church and state end up in bed, that inevitably that ends up happening. The state uses the church to justify questionable, even unjust uh, decisions. Second um, um, uh, similarity between the two of them is the ruthless uh, elimination of political opponents. Stalin, ha Stalin sent his political opponents to the gulag, to the uh, concentration camps, and Putin sends his uh, to their death. Uh, through poisonings and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's people are so naive and think that we're in the 21st century now. Horrible things like that won't happen anymore. We've advanced morally. The thing is, human beings don't advance morally. There's always going to be evil. And we're seeing this happen again with the rise of uh, Putin, especially at his uh, more advanced age right now. <clears throat> and then finally, um, there's a remarkable affinity between the two of them view of history. Both Stalin and Putin don't place hope in Christ the King returning to set the world to rights, that they think that story of the world is not the true story of the whole world. But instead, if there's going to be a savior, it's going to have to be a political savior. And Putin has offered himself as that political savior. And, and so, the, you know, the, the uh, similarities are, are striking and saddening, and uh, maybe they should remind us, you know, of the Bible's anthropology, the Bible's view of what it means to be human, that there is evil that runs through every single human heart. And when a person gets in a position of absolute power, often that evil can come out. It's unchecked, though it would be checked if they weren't in a position of absolute power. Would it be fair to say that they buy an idea of sovereignty? It's just not a good and godly sovereignty because, I mean, Putin at least um, sees himself as, as you've described, messianic. Um, political salvation, though, is what he, you know, what he's offering. Um, and, a, and a version, it, let's do this, Bruce, because many of us don't know the differences between um, Soviet-era style communism and whatever form of economic and political system uh, exists in Russia today. So maybe the most helpful thing to do would be distinguish between those two. Stalin's uh, form of governance in the yep. Soviet Union and what exists now in Russia. Because, I mean, obviously, if there's McDonald's, there's capitalism. So that's not pure communism. So can we just talk about those distinctions? That might be really helpful today. Yeah, sure. So when the Soviet Union rose, um, what they decided to do is they decided to pair Marxist uh, economics with a totalitarian state. And so it was an officially atheist state, and um, they, they decided that they would uh, have a central planning committee in Moscow who would plan what the prices would be for different things. They would determine the price of eggs in uh, St. Petersburg and the price of tractors out in the country. And it just didn't work well because you can't tell people what the value of something is. The value of something to people is, is how much they need it and how much they need, they need to use it. And so the economic portion worked terribly. The totalitarian portion went hand in hand with it because if you're totalitarian over the economy, determining everything in the economy, you, you'll be totalitarian about everything else. And so it was a brutal uh, reign. Now, when the Soviet Union fell, 
there was an openness to capitalism. There was also an openness to the gospel and, and capitalism and the gospel are not the same thing. I'm not saying that kind of thing at all. What, I, what I'm saying is, is that there, you have to have freedom in order to embrace the gospel uh, generally, openly and publicly, and you have to have a uh, certain amount of freedom to thrive economically. But what happened is, instead of good forms of um, capitalism coming into Russia, we got what we could call crony capitalism. And what happened is the Communist Party bosses, who were planners and administrators, got together with the KGB assassins and agents who, uh, you know, gathered intelligence and enforced things uh, with lethal violence, they got together and formed crime families. So the crime families in Russia aren't actual families. They're not related to each other. They're just powerful cabals of men who uh, uh, have taken over Russia's capitalism. So Russia has never experienced a free state, and they have only for a brief amount of time experience just freedoms in general like we have, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of the press for a very brief time um, when Yeltsin was around. And then at the very beginning of Putin's reign, um, they experienced that. So they've, um, they've experienced Soviet communism, which is absolutely, and, and, and socialism is always devastating economically. They experienced an atheistic socialist state followed up by a religiously nationalist crony capitalist state. So um, our hearts should go out to the Russian people. They've had a rough go. So this is one of those when, when people wonder, you know, why uh, why don't Russians rise up? Why don't they you know, why, you know, although they might uh, go and protest, why are they not trying to. Um, overthrow their government. I mean, uh, part of it is you're talking about people who've been generationally conditioned, um, educated. Um, uh, I mean, they, they've they been trained to report on their neighbor. Um, I mean, I, it's it would be unusual. It would be really beyond, I think, um, worldly expectation that a people so oppressed for so long um, would ever rise up against uh, the particular form of government they now have, which regards the state as superior to the individual, as more important than the individual. The collective is more important um, than the person. And so I think that when I consider um, how I pray for the people of Russia, like, I mean, I just have this heart that's just broken. They've just been a people in captivity for so long. Yeah, I mean, think about it from the perspective. I'm, just, I'm a father. I just think of the perspective of a middle-aged man who is a father. Um, for him to go out in the protest right now in the streets is to be sent to prison, taken away from his children for the rest of their life, and prob- probably to no avail, right? I mean, so, you know, we wonder why people won't protest. It's because here in America, we have no real fears. I mean, what's the worst thing? We pro- get, you know, we protest, we get, you know, if we're violent in our protests, we get put in jail for a night. You know, these folks get sentenced to prison for the rest of their life, and then sometimes they disappear. And so if they're weighing the pros and the cons of protesting, for a lot of them, they're going to choose their family uh, and their their uh, their friendships. And uh, if they're Christian, their, their house church that they meet in, they're going to choose that over a private protest. And their way of protesting is, uh, you know, to live a good life. And so it's just mm-hmm. a very tricky, very complicated situation. And those of us in America who've never experience brutal oppression, um, you know, we probably have a difficult time wrapping our heads around that. Yeah. 
All right. Hey, there's another great piece at BruceAshford.net that I don't want you to miss. To anyone who thinks Jesus is not political, the rest of that title should be Think Again. All right. So uh, check it out, BruceAshford.net. Lots of great content there. Bruce, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be on the show. I wish you an excellent rest of the day. Thank you. You as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's pause for Upwards with Max Lucado. It hadn't occurred to me that this is a little bit of a Father's Day hour, but, you know, Bruce made reference to being a dad and the way dads feel about their children and their families and the welfare and the responsibilities that they bear. Dan DeWitt is up next. Um, He has a father's story as well to share with us today about the baptism of his own son. Um, You know, in the lead up to Father's Day, you know, maybe let's just uh, consider our dads today. They were likely, in fact, I'm certain of it, imperfect. My dad was imperfect. Your dad uh, was or is imperfect. Um, thankfully, there are men who have um, stepped into a fatherly role in all of our lives. Um, I'm thinking of pastors. I'm thinking of mentors. I'm thinking of uh, elders and deacons in the church. And then I'm also recognizing immediately that some of them have failed us as well. And so we have a complicated relationship with fathers here on earth, which I think leads to some people having a very complicated relationship with with the Father in heaven, because there's such great confusion there. And so let me be quick to acknowledge um, those challenges. And then let me also um, extend to you the invitation to reconsider the goodness of God our Father. Let let God's image not be marred by the ways in which earthly dads or people in um, in in the role of uh, representatives of God here on earth. Um, let not those misrepresentations and those flaws mar the relationship that God wants to have with you as your father. That's just something to reconsider as we approach Father's Day. Dan DeWitt joins us next. Uh, He serves at Cedarville University. He also uh, blogs at a site called Theo Latte, and that's where he posts the weekend. Well, it's no no longer the weekend worldview reader, although I still regard it that way, but it's the worldview reader, and it is a a wonderful aggregated list of materials for us to consider. Um, And we're going to roam around with Dan in the hallway, metaphor of C.S. Lewis. And yes, I'm going to ask about his son's baptism as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dan DeWitt joining us now. Theolatte.com is where you're going to find... Well, you know, some of the content we're discussing, although our conversation tends to range around a bit. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? I'm 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 blessed. I am blessed. God is great and God is good. And Same. all the I'm, time. Uh, yeah, all the time. So I'm just settled into that. Um how about you? How are you? 
I am doing wonderful. The The semester's over. My grading is in. I have a book I'm working on. I just turned in the manuscript yesterday. Um, so I feel really happy this morning. And I've had like three cups of coffee. So let's do this thing. <laughs> let's talk about um, a, a recent experience that you had um, on a given Sunday uh, when you baptized Josiah. Talk, talk with us um, about that experience and what it means to you. So, yeah, thank you. Well, it was such a, a joy and an honor. Our church allows dads, um, you don't have to be ordained or on staff, um, but allows dads to baptize. And um, a few months ago, I remember um, our son just has been asking a lot of really good questions. So he just turned 11, and we knew the Lord was working in his heart. And we really didn't want to rush that. You know, it would it would be very easy for any adult to get a child to do something, um, say a prayer or something like that. And we just wanted to see and wait for God's work to be evident. And so I walked by our um, living room, and my wife April and son Josiah were sitting in there, and I could tell what they were talking about. That it was it was more than just kind of his typical questions about God. It was very focused. April had her Bible out, and she was sharing with them. And so I went into the dining room and said a prayer for them because I felt like I think I know what's happening. And mm-hmm. moments later, Josiah walks in, um, you know, a, a smile across his face and um, tears in his eyes and tells me what he's done. And so we rejoiced over that. We waited for his baptism for a couple months so that we could get other family members who wanted to be here here. And so this last Sunday, um, I was able to baptize my son, Josiah, and it was a very meaningful thing as a Christian. Um, in some ways, it's a picture of death. And a lot of ways, standing in those waters, I am talking about my son's death. And it's not the kind of thing you would think would be a cause for celebration, but it's his death in Christ. As Christ died in his place, my son died with Jesus. Um, and the way that God the Father has accepted Jesus. God the Father, baptism is picturing God the Father has accepted my son. And one day, this physical act of baptism will be further illustrated when my son's body, that buried after his physical death, will be physically raised. The baptism is this powerful, provocative picture of the reality of, that's ours in Christ. So that was a real honor for me to, to baptize him. I'm sure there's people thinking right now, what do you mean your church lets dads baptize, um, you know, their children when they come to this point of um, an expression not only of confessing sin, but um, acknowledging Christ as Savior and Lord? Um, there's, There's actually nothing in the Bible other than being a disciple of Jesus Christ commissioned to go and make other disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that uh, Christ has commanded us. Um, there's there's nothing prohibitive in the Bible um, or prescriptive in the Bible that says that only quote unquote ordained people can baptize, and so I, I'm I'm assuming that that's uh, why the practice of your particular church is what it is. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, and you know, of course, you know, you might have listeners and Christians differ on kind of the mode of baptism. And we might even differ in terms of exactly what baptism is communicating. Is it uh, the sign of the the new covenant, whereas circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament? 
um, in the New Testament. Many would say baptism's the sign of the New Covenant. And I think that there's room for Christians to to differ on these things. Um, but we would all agree on this reality that baptism's a picture of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. As he died, we have died to, to the power of sin in an ultimate sense. And as he was raised to live in the Father's presence, we will be raised to live in the Father's presence. And so my church um, would say that this is a calling for all believers. Um, some churches would limit it to the clergy, to those who are ordained and on staff. My church limits it to dads. I don't know that we've ever had a mom baptized, but I wouldn't see anything necessarily in the Bible that would prohibit that. Um, but the celebration of our death in Jesus and our future resurrection in Jesus is such a powerful, wonderful thing. And Paul, regularly, I, I took my son out to, to breakfast to talk about baptism. He's my third son now to, to get baptized, and I only have three, so there won't be any mm-hmm. more sons getting baptized unless the Lord has divine something in mind that yeah something <laughs> right. in mind that you and april don't uh are not yet privy to yeah That's right. um, we're talking we're talking with dan dewitt we're talking um about a number of things posted right now at theolatte.com including dan's sharing about uh josiah's baptism highly recommend that you make use of that uh, maybe it'll be uh, an opportunity for a conversation with someone in your family about the meaning of baptism or maybe an invitation for them to consider being baptized. You also have this really great post um, about C.S. Lewis and the hallway metaphor that he uses um, to describe mere Christianity. Um, Get this conversation started, and then um, let's roam around in this content a little bit. This is so good. Well, actually, right after the baptism, um, I flew out later that day to go to Chicago, and that plays into this hallway picture And I'll come back to that story when we have a chance. C.S. Lewis led generations through a wardrobe um, into a magical land of talking fawns, lampposts, and the benevolent lion Aslan. But Lewis led just as many, and I would argue more, into a far more powerful place, a hallway. Uh, Yet Lewis made it clear he didn't desire for any of us to stay there. So Lewis used the metaphor of a hallway— as a part of his project that he called Mere Christianity. The hallway was a place where Christians are unified in our most profound of convictions about God and Jesus. The hallway is not a place for theological nuance, where we might differ between Presbyterians and Baptists, like we mentioned before with baptism. The hallway is a place where we are all united around statements that summarize this shared belief like the Apostles' Creed. It was Lewis's goal to get people into the hallway, but he didn't want us to stay there. So get us into the hallway, um, because I think that many people are—I mean, we have all those jokes, Dan, about, you know, when we get to heaven, the, you know, the, the walls between the um, denominational rooms are going to have to be pretty thick because people are going to be surprised that other people are there. Like, I don't think yeah. that's how it's going to work at all. Um, I think we're, you know, we're going to inhabit heaven as fully redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ, and there will be no divisions and no barriers uh, between or among us. So in heaven, we're going to all live in the, you know, in, in the hallway, so to speak. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, as a person who wants to live as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven— and, you know, and have my life be a living demonstration of the values 
of the kingdom of heaven here in the midst of the kingdoms of the earth. Like I'm a hallway person like that's <laughs> and that's not to say that I don't have a distinctive uh, congregation with whom I worship. Um, but I'm a hallway. Per- like I, I think I am a hallway Christian. I, I might start using that to describe myself. I mean, I like to sometimes jokingly say I'm a methobacterian, but I maybe <laughs> maybe I'm I mean, when I go to conferences, maybe that's why I like to spend time out there in the hallway. Well, and you're such a people person, too. So you're so pleasant to visit with that. Um, that's probably part of it, too. But absolutely. Yeah, I think that this connects us to the reality that we are going to we the reality we share in Christ that transcends our denominational distinctives. Um, but Lewis said, you know, the rooms are important. And he talked about the rooms off the hallway as as denominations. And Lewis said, you know, that the rooms are where there's a fire and there's a meal and there's laughter. Um, but what I found is sometimes we get into a room. So say that's a Presbyterian church or Methodist church or Baptist church or Anglican church or whatever. We can go through the whole list. You get into your room, and sometimes we despise the hallway, and that's mm. not good. Um, nor is it good to be in the hallway and and despise all the rooms. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a place for both. But as you've said, in heaven there's not going to be a you know sectioned off um, area of heaven called the Baptist section. Although I, I went to a very conservative Baptist college that taught um, the Bride of Christ is the independent fundamental Baptist church. And everyone else we see in the in Revelation, those are the friends of the bride. And so mm. um, there are some who would see that, and I just want to say that is something wholly imposed on Scripture. We will worship with those from around the world, every generation, who trust in Jesus. And the things that make us separate from one another on Sundays now, those distinctions will be gone in eternity. So love a room, but also love the hallway. There's a time— for both. And you didn't get to the room directly. You got there through the hallway. We're talking with Dan DeWitt. We're talking about several things he's got posted right now at theolatte.com. When we come back, I'm going to ask him to reflect upon an experience that he had earlier this week at the Scholar Leaders International event in Chicago. Um, He's going to teach us a little bit, I think, about the power of storytelling. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dan DeWitt. There's a lot of really good stuff posted uh, today on the Worldview Reader at theolatte.com. There's a couple of pieces um, with links related to near-death experiences. Um, are they real? What does science have to say about them? How should Christians think about near-death experiences? And also a discussion about UFOs um, and the Great Replacement Theory just a really, really good aggregated list uh, for us in terms of where we might spend our reading time today and over the weekend. Dan's also got uh, a piece posted that we've talked some about here already, C.S. Lewis and how he leads us into a hallway but told us not to stay there. Um, Dan, in there, you you begin to share a little bit about an experience you had earlier this week, and I thought we just invite you to unpack that because it sounds like it was particularly um, transformative for you. It really was. And also, I was so just sensitive as a dad, having just baptized my son. And 
recognizing that this is identifying him not only with Christ, not only with our local church, but with every believer throughout all the generations with whom he will worship throughout all of eternity. And so mm-hmm. we've been talking about this distinction between um, the universal church or the global church that's all believers in all places and all times, um, and then your local church, where you go that probably has some name on a sign in the parking lot. And there's a distinction between the two, the universal church and your local church. In heaven, there won't be local churches. There will just be the church. And so having baptized my son and been thinking about these things more kind of acutely than normal, I got on a plane shortly after the service and flew to Chicago. So the reason I did, I often will get the opportunity to do consulting with different orgs um, about creativity, storytelling, and communications. And so that's something I love to do as I have the opportunity and as my schedule allows. So I had the opportunity to fly to Chicago and consult with a group called Scholar Leaders International. And let me tell you, I, it was an amazing experience, and I haven't gotten over it yet. So Scholar Leaders is an organization that started um, back, I believe, in the 80s with some very warm-hearted Christian philanthropists who got together and prayed together and asked, how can we affect the church around the world? Um, the, and to use the conversation, this is kind of a hallway um, ambition, not just a particular denomination, but how do we affect the church around the world, particularly in places where they don't have the resources that we have in America? And they felt like the very best way they could do that was to take the top thinkers, um, emerging leaders around the world, and pay for their PhD. And mm. so they have students now on scholarship, students from China, students from the Middle East. They have students from all over studying at places like Duke, studying at places like Oxford, Fuller Seminary, Trinity Seminary. And these students, once they finish their PhD, go back to their home countries and serve. And over the years, they found that not only do they want to scholarship them, but when they go back to serve, they want to assist them in the institutions where they teach and serve. So it was just a, it's an amazing organization. But I sat around the table with to my right was a, a guy, um, his name's Lindsay, and he is from um, South Africa. To my left um, is Emmanuel, and he's from Ghana. And then next to him was Waki, um, who's from Egypt. And you could just go down the list from leaders from Latin America. And we sat around and shared life together. We talked about their story and their students. And it was such a beautiful picture of mere Christianity, such a beautiful picture of the hallway that I had to write a reflection on it. And it reminded me my soul needs those kinds of conversations in those kinds of places. It occurs to me that um, one of the things that Scholar Leaders International is doing is recognizing that um, although the institutional church is very, very important, Christians are called by God in every arena of life, and um, and we need well-equipped Christians um, who are thinking people in, you know, in sustainable businesses as well, um, and we need them to be catalytic change agents in their communities. Um, and so there's a lot, um, there's a lot going on um, through this organization. And so I just, I just appreciate, you know, I, well, first of all, I love the global church and I love brothers mm-hmm. and sisters in Christ from, you know, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And often we get so narrowly focused on what's going on. I mean, literally within the four walls of whatever room we happen to be in at the time. But 
um, but definitely within the borders and boundaries of our own country. And we act as if God has some special affection um, for us because we're Americans. And this is one of those opportunities, I think, to just recognize that, you know, the, most of the church is actually outside of the United States of America, and most of the church, um, you know, does, is not white, and most of the church is not educated in the same ways I've been educated. I mean, on and on and on. Um, just really opportunities to, I mean, I don't know if this was your experience, but the spirit of the Lord and the joy of the Lord uh-huh. is often more freely flowing from folks um, who live in places that are much harder to live than the place I live. Yes. Um, and it's such an infectious joy. You know, we are kind of um, lulled into, at times, a kind of a cynical attitude and, and entitled attitude. And to be around brothers and sisters who are so focused, and they're imperfect too, just like we are, um, but to be reminded of this this deep well of joy that is ours to be had in Christ— and in seeing him move, and to hear about all these great, powerful stories, that was just, I kept texting my wife, saying, I can't believe I get to sit around this table with these mm. women and men. At one point in, in one of the meetings, I, you know, as we're all prone to do when we sit in eight-hour meetings all day, um, I zoned out a bit and was quickly, you know, shaken out of my, you know, um, distractedness when one of the leaders said, you know, exactly what are we supposed to do in, in talking to future leaders when in our area it's not uncommon to have a pastor who's killed every month? Mm. Mm. And there was such a sobering statement. I mean, it snapped me back into attention and then immediately to, to begin praying for these leaders who are really risking their lives. So it was just such a great thing, and it, it brought me back to the Lewis hallway metaphor that this is this is the hallway, you know. It's all these believers. Sure, on Sundays we, for the most part, are going to different churches. We have nuances, um, you know, that lead us into various local churches that we love. Those are rooms that are serve a purpose and are helpful. And of course, Jesus died for the church, and the local church is an expression of that. But man, it's so good to come back to the hallway and to be reminded of what God's doing around the world through so many people, we, that we do not have um, a, um, an exclusive claim on God's work. In fact, outside of America, Aslan is on the move. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Uh, God is on the move. No question about that. Uh, and for those of you that missed the um, Aslan reference, then we want you to read the Chronicles of Narnia by there C.S. Lewis, which brings us full circle back to the hallway metaphor that C.S. Lewis, Lewis uses as a metaphor um, to describe mere Christianity. And you can read all about that at theolatte.com in Dan's um, piece right there at the top. C.S. Lewis led us into a hallway but told us not to stay there. Dan, as always, thank you uh, so much. Thank you, Carmen. Have a great day. What a joy. That's Dan DeWitt. You can find him at theolatte.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. on the move, on the move, hallelujah. 
God is on the move in many mighty ways. How is it that you have seen God on the move this week? Send me some field reports. Yep. I want you to bear positive witness and testimony to where you have seen God moving in your life or in the life of another person or in the world. Um, text me your testimony of where, you know, your, your, wit, your eyewitness testimony of where you have seen God on the move. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. Where and how is God on the move in many mighty ways? In the song, it says, I see a generation standing on the truth in each and every nation. God is on the move. Anytime the gospel stirs a searching soul and someone says, send me, here I go. I know, I know, I know, I know. God is on the move. Do you know that God is on the move? God is on the move right now by the power and inspiration of his Holy Spirit in your life. And God is on the move right now in many mighty ways in our families, in our communities, in this world that he so loves. The gospel is advancing. Like, reread the book of Acts if you want to be inspired and encouraged in how God moves through generations of people advancing the gospel always and in all ways. There is no one on earth about whom God is not concerned and toward whom God does not want to move. And how does God do that? Well, he moves by the power and inspiration of his Holy Spirit and through the church, the body of Christ deployed in the world today to go forth in the name of Jesus to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. And yeah, we remember that Christ is with us always in the person of the Holy Spirit until he returns. God is on the move. Let us be moving in the direction of the inspiration of God's Spirit today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We've got another hour up now. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.